0: All right. Uh, They're saying we had problems with the audio. Hopefully, uh, if you lost a feed, there's a new feed to start out here. Uh, That was based on Don Stevens' uh, uh, advice, so he might have been uh, uh, wrong about that, Uh, and I might have just panicked because I couldn't find the audio uh, problem. Uh, But then again, we do have electrical storms going on out there. So again, I I started out the show to talk about is the war on cigarettes, is this new, right? Is the war on cigarettes new? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, What I do know is it was started by Dr. Gottlieb under Trump. It goes all the way back to the giant tobacco settlements. And we started out talking a little bit about baby formula at the beginning. Uh, If you believe in personal freedom, if you believe in personal freedom, you cannot say that the war on cigarettes uh, is different than the war on drugs. If you believe in personal freedom, I should be allowed to ingest tobacco just as I should be allowed to ingest cocaine or heroin or whatever I want. Um, Once you decide that one class of drug is wrong, you're impeding on people's personal freedoms. Most interestingly, and I'll I'll, I'll show it again, um, substance abuse. And you'll see here illegal drugs are worse uh, than prescription opioids. But even when you combine the two, tobacco dwarfs them both or is a little bit more than both combined in both direct and indirect costs. And so why am I raising this? I'm raising it because if you're rational, we should ban tobacco well before we ban cocaine or other illegal drugs, because the medical costs and the lost productivity costs from tobacco are are great. So it's the graphic killed the audio, is that what you're saying? Did it, did it come back on, Don? Did that bring this audio back up? Um, how about now, you got audio now? Let me know. So they may have a uh, they may have a, a flaw in our system here. Okay, we're back. So the graphics somehow is killing the audio. Okay, well that's not supposed to happen, Don, because this is a highly tuned uh, restream system that I pay a solid twenty dollars a month for. So I don't understand. Uh, so so where I'm going with all this? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that if you believe in personal freedom, if you believe uh that person's right to choose to smoke tobacco is their god-given right well then you have to believe that cocaine is their god-given right too because cocaine causes a lot less damage than tobacco and some of you'll say oh no because there's all these shootings that go on with cocaine and there's all all this clandestine drug dealing and these giant cartels which are only created by the fact that cocaine's illegal Uh, economists have suggested that legalizing drugs would dry up the supply and and, end the crime. There'd be no uh, uh, crisis, right? I don't necessarily think that's 100% true. There'd still be demand and we'd still need to work on cessation. Uh, But I do believe that most of the violence is because it's an illegal activity. If you make an activity legal, uh, regulate it, it removes the violence and puts it back in the courts and the ability to contract to enforce things. Um, And earlier I was talking about baby formula, and I was saying, maybe speciously or not speciously, that baby formula should require a prescription. And why would I say should it require a prescription? Um, Because there's no need for it, right? Why should people be allowed to choose whether to breastfeed or not breastfeed? A woman doesn't have a right to choose whether to carry a baby to term or not. In some states soon when the Supreme Court hands down this decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So why should a woman then be allowed to choose how to feed the baby? or what level of care the baby needs? If in fact, breast milk is safer for the baby, if the health and the welfare of the baby is paramount, uh, we should mandate breastfeeding. And again, if you guys want to call in, it's 717-906-5319. 717-906-5319. We'll get you on the air. Uh, and of course, we also rebroadcast this on Spotify and Anchor and Apple, and I know we actually have some listeners. Obviously, you can't call in live, but every Sunday and every Wednesday at 8 p.m., you can call that number, 717 uh, You also have the ability to leave a voicemail. So if you want to leave a voicemail on it during the week or during an off time, I will get them and I can play them on the air. Uh, so that is a possibility as well. So if you just want to leave a shout out or a message, we can do that as well. So what what I want you guys to think about is what does personal freedom mean in this context? What does personal freedom mean to me? What does personal freedom mean to you? Uh, Should people be allowed to choose to ingest tobacco, cocaine, or breastfeed? Well, they're all tied together in a libertarian versus non-libertarian value, how much control the state should have. So I'm always amazed that people who claim to be very law and order get upset when the government infringes on something that they believe to be their right. So for instance, people will often tell me that I have a second amendment right on guns and that shall not be infringed. If that's the case, and, and, and we're going to agree on that, there aren't many other things that are in the constitution that can't be infringed if that's the barrier to infringement. If a negative prescription in the Constitution for since the First Amendment is in there. So we just saw in France uh, today or in the last couple of days, courts have said that women can be forced to take off clothing at the beach. Um, they don't want women wearing so much clothing at the beach because apparently if you wear too much clothing at the beach, um, it's, these uh, burkas, bikinis or something, it shows your religiousness and they don't want people showing their religious uh, stripes in public. So when women wear these uh, burkinis or burka bikinis, uh, they have to take them off or leave the beach. And that's been upheld as lawful. Um, They also can't ban women from going topless at the beach, apparently, in France. In the United States, under the First Amendment and your freedom of religion, that could never happen. If you want to wear a colander on your head and claim to be a apostafarian, you may do so. Uh, If you want to wear a burqa and claim to be a devout Muslim, you may do so. Um, And we don't infringe that. Now we're struggling. For instance, Maine, the Supreme Court just told the state of Maine, they can't not give money to a school because it's a religious school. In other words, if you're giving out money for people to use as vouchers for secular schools, you can't take religious schools out of the mix. And some people are saying, well, you're forcing a state to pay for a religion, right? But this depends which way you look at the question. Are you forcing the state to pay for somebody's religion because the religious schools can collect, or are you simply saying the state can't discriminate where that money goes? Um, It might almost be better in one sense if the state just gave the money to the parents and said, you can do this for anything school related, then the person could choose what to use it for as opposed to directly funding the school, Um, or just give the money to the parents and tell them they can use it as they choose, and if they don't want to send their kids to school with it. Uh, they can put it towards whatever they want, like a uh, a Nintendo. To, I'm, I'm aging myself, right? An Xbox. Wait, I'm aging myself. Uh, an online streaming service to entertain the kids and and the hardware to play it on, including the 80 inch television, um, which wouldn't be the highest and best use of the money. And maybe that's why there's some strings attached. And once you attach strings, can the strings have a net religious effect? The problem we're going to run into as we say that freedom of religion goes to a higher and higher level. What if I'm a member of a church that believes in racial profiling of some sort? You know, my church has decided that God um, created different skin tones for a purpose and that uh, the darker the skin, the holier the person. And therefore, we're not going to admit light-skinned people into my church um, because they're not truly holy. And when you say, you you can't just... By the way, my church now has a daycare and a restaurant and and a whole bunch of stuff in the giant religious park that we've built. And you're gonna say, hey, wait, you're discriminating based on skin color. And I'm gonna say, yeah, but that's fundamental to my religion. Um, and then some people are gonna say, well, the constitution says that religious rights trump uh, uh, equal rights of the 14th amendment because one came before the other, I, I don't know. I, I just see where this is headed. It's headed to people being able to stake out good faith or even bad faith religious beliefs that are hard to pin down which one is which. Um, And of course, some people would say, excuse your common sense, Carl, there are good faith uh, religious beliefs and there are bad faith uh, religious beliefs. And I'm not sure that I agree uh, that there are good faith and bad faith religious beliefs. I think they're just religious beliefs. And who am I to classify whether your religious belief is in good faith or bad faith? But you have to decide uh, where we're going to draw this line or we as a society have to decide where we're going to draw this line. So again, coming back to personal freedom, my, my right to practice my religion. Um, so I had a friend who just had a baby and we were discussing whether he committed, and I'm going to say committed the act of circumcision on his child. Because he was saying to me, imagine these parents Imagine these parents who take a kid who's a little kid and they make a gender assignment for them and they start transitioning their child in some kind of gender path. And how, And basically he was like, how dare they? To which I said, you know, just me being me, uh, well, did you circumcise your child? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, well, how dare you? How dare you commit genital, genital mutilation and forever change um, that child's uh, look on life or that That you guys know where I'm going with this, and the question is, is well, most people do it. Well, then you study it and you start looking at it, and you go, circumcision. America's on the decline. People my age had circumcision the most. Uh, You know, why is Carl talking about circumcision? Well, it goes into personal freedom. Like, can I choose to gender assign my kid who's in that 0.5 percent of all gender births where they're intergender? Uh, remember that guys 0.5%, which is, you know, like 1.5 million people who are running around in the United States right now, um, are truly intergender. Um, so they're often given a medical choice at birth. The parents are said, well, you know, we can snip this or snoot that. And then you can have a boy or you can have a girl. And which way do you want to go with this? Maybe that's one question versus a parent who simply says, I want to change my boy into a girl or my girl into a boy because they're eight. And I think that's what they want to do. But is that really different than a parent who says, I want to lop the foreskin off my my newborn? Uh, And some are going to be like, well, of course, that's perfectly natural. I don't know if it's perfectly natural. I think it comes out of a a religious um, dogma. Uh, Diana says freedom to choose. And Diana, I agree, freedom to choose. And so why are we locking up cocaine dealers, Diana? Why are we locking them up? Should I not be allowed to just snort a, like a Scarface pilot pile of cocaine if I want? Shouldn't I be allowed to do that? Um, I can smoke cigars all day if I want. Um, I can know to exercise that right from time to time. Um, on the other hand, when I was locked in prison, I didn't want to be breathing other people's smoke all day, every day, as smoked like chimneys, because even though the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections says they don't allow smoking. Uh, there's more smoking going on in there than there is in a Marlboro commercial. I don't know if there's ever any smoking in a Marlboro commercial these days. That's a whole, maybe that's a trick question. Um, so, you know, freedom to choose, uh, you know, Diana, I don't know where, where does that line get drawn? So on cigarettes, uh, as I've shown in a graphic that I'm not going to put back up because Don says it keeps kicking the sound off, they are spending more money on cigarettes for direct and indirect costs from tobacco use than we are for illegal drugs. So in a rational society, if we were gonna eliminate harms in order of cost, um, we would start by getting rid of tobacco before we went after cocaine and heroin and opiates and prescription opiates are included in those numbers as well. So they give two numbers combined, prescription opiates and and illegal drugs combined are less than than, uh, tobacco. Now I'm not I'm not saying that the war on tobacco is a good or a bad thing. Um, I have mixed emotions about it, right? They're going to have to pry my cigar from my cold dead hand, uh, to quote somebody. Which, by the way, I did I did get from the NRA today. Let me see if I can pull this up for you guys. Um, the NRA sent me a message today, and I think I can I think I can do this. Uh, yeah. They uh, want me to call Senator Toomey and urge opposition to anti-2A package today, and and they got this uh, cool picture on here. Uh, urgent U.S. Senate, you know, they want me to oppose what's going on. Um, we can talk about that. There's a deal in the Senate put together right now. It's talking about personal freedoms again. Uh, which may restrict people's ability to own guns and change the way the laws are applied to us. And, and so laws come into play, take away some of our freedoms. Diana, every law is a lack of freedom, right? Uh, because no laws mean I can do whatever I want, whatever I want, to whoever I want. And so Locke and Hobbes, right? Hobbes talked about man in his natural state. And so, you know, some guy's sitting under the uh, the tree and he gathers nuts to eat and he has a pile of nuts and he's sitting against the tree and then another guy walks over with a club, hits him over the head and takes his nuts. And then he eats his nuts and then the guy who's biggest and strongest and carries and swings the biggest club and can stay awake the longest, he survives and everybody else just sort of stuck not being able to eat, right? Because once that guy's under the tree, he's not going to let you under there or he gets to pick who can come under there. So uh, Locke and Hobbes talked about, you know, one and then the other, the idea of setting up a government and getting out of the natural state where there has to be some rules to to regulate who gets the nuts, you know. So what society is, it's an understanding on how to distribute the nuts, who's going to eat, who's going to starve. Well, once we agree to this social contract, right, And I think that's where, was it Hobbes who talked about the Leviathan, which is the idea of submitting to the government. And then Locke said, no, you're not forever stuck with the Leviathan. You can revolt against it at a certain point. Of course, that bled into our founding fathers. I could be butchering my philosophy right now. It's been a while. Uh, Boy, I'm going to have to do a little reading on that. Uh, But the idea of, of, of no laws is no society no iPhones, right? Because how do things get built and how does business get done? It gets done because I know that when I open up the store in the morning, pull up the gate, let people into my giant food store, that they're all going to leave in an orderly fashion and pay for what they're taking, right? And the few that don't pay for what they're taking, if I catch them and call the popo, the popo is going to come and arrest them. They're going to get in trouble. They're not going to want to steal. They're going to have an escalating series of punishments. And and so, of course, this is interesting when in other parts of the country where they're saying, well, we can't arrest people just for shoplifting. Well, the problem is, as you you remove the freedom of contract, I can't put my shop in a section of town where people are going to shoplift. And I can't leave a a shop and run it profitably anywhere where people are going to shoplift. So if you have a city or a suburb or an area that decides that there will not be any penalty for stealing or shoplifting, um, then we get back to the nuts under a tree with the guy with the biggest club who comes in and takes what he wants. And notice I say he, somebody's gonna be like, Well, Carl, you know, women couldn't participate in this too. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but generally speaking, except for these intersex people we were talking about before, men are generally bigger on average and stronger on average due to the biology. So I suspect it would be a man. Uh, swinging the club who would end up with all the nuts. Now that doesn't mean he's not going to invite some females under the tree, right? Um, so where I'm going with this is, and when we talk about personal freedoms, okay? Uh, who have we got here? Let's see, seat belts, right? If, if what you do only affects you, then who cares? It's what you do that affects others that regulation is necessary. Yeah, that's true, Don. And I, I I like that. Right. Um, and then, and then Diana, you're kind of related question. We do need laws, but where do we start stop? So Don is suggesting Diana that laws start or stop at the point where it only affects me. So let me give you an example. People will say here in Pennsylvania, there was a big, let's repeal the seatbelt law. Right. Um, let's repeal the motorcycle helmet law. So there was an abate organization, they won, Tom Ridge signed something, you no longer have to wear a motorcycle helmet, right? Because it only affects me. Well, what's, we, can, we can stay out of the debate whether helmets help or hurt. There's an argument that helmets don't actually help. There's an argument that helmets cause people to go faster and so there's no net effect. But let's just assume for a minute that wearing a helmet is slightly safer than not wearing a helmet and that every year in Pennsylvania, there's a few people who are injured because they didn't wear a helmet, then there wouldn't have been. We lose their productivity, which means we lose their taxes, right? We lose their ability to care for their children, their spouses, etc. cetera, so we lose that productivity. There's a there's a cost to society for every self sustained injury. So when I go in my car and drive to the ski mountain, strap pieces of wood to my feet or composite material as they are today, and zoom down the mountain at 35 miles an hour, I'm risking not just what happens to me, but what happens to society. We make these choices. So we've decided that it's okay to ride a motorcycle without a helmet, but not a car without a seatbelt. You must wear a seatbelt in your car on your way to the ski mountain, but there's no requirement that you have any particular training or acumen uh, before you start flying down the mountain as fast as you want in whatever conditions they'll let you up there on, which is regulated by a private entity. And uh, if you end up in a coma and your medical insurance turns out to be non-existent and the hospital has a million dollar bill to write off, um, that goes right back to society. So so Don, my challenge to you, um, my, my, my challenge to you would be, uh, where do you draw that line? Just like Dionysus, where do we start, stop? So if we go based on effects on individuals or any one person, um, there's always the argument, right, that that could, in fact, be based on uh, what the true cost to society is. So coming back to Carl says we should be allowed to do cocaine if we're allowed to do uh, tobacco. Okay, we'll open it up wide, and we'll just hope all the costs even out. Um, But that comes right back to fuel, for instance. Right, we're paying a lot for gasoline right now. There's not an adequate supply. Everybody says, "Well, I should be—I'm an American. American, I can drive where I want, when I want, with whatever vehicle I want. If I want to buy a Hummer, I want to buy a F four fifty, and I want to pull a horse trailer, and I want to go to a horse show." Uh, and I want to do all these things, it's my right to spend my money the way I want. Okay, great. But there's a cost to society. Um, If fossil fuels are a problem, I guess there's a cost called global warming. If any that's true, that's for another day, another show. I'm not a big believer that anthropomorphic or anthrocentric, whatever you want to call it, global warming is the major problem that everybody thinks it is. but, but if it isn't, um, there are other costs to fuel, right? We're driving up everybody else's costs when we do something leisurely. So if you drive to the Mechanicsburg Walmart from Carlisle instead of the Carlisle Walmart, uh, just because you like thought you might stop at the Sam's Club but don't, you just burn 16 miles worth of gas that you wouldn't have burned otherwise, that has a cost to society. Um so all of our incremental choices have our aggregate costs. This is not new. There's something called the tragedy of the commons, and that's the idea that, you know, if if I have a cow or a sheep and I send my sheep out onto the commons to feed or graze, and the commons belong to everybody, and every farmer can support one sheep on the commons, and I get two sheep and I get a little ahead. Uh, as more farmers get two sheep, the commons gets overgrazed, and pretty soon there's not enough grass left. Uh, for everybody's sheep. And so as each person tries to get ahead and there's only so much resource to get around, other people get hurt by that. That's called the tragedy of the commons. Um, the only solution to the tragedy of the commons is to find a different way to utilize the commons that's more effective. Uh, find a sheep breed that eats a little less but still makes as much wool or meat and um, find a way to fertilize the commons so it produces more grass, come up with different grazing strategies uh, so that you don't destroy the field, you know, keep things moving around, different things you can do. But at the end of the day, there's still a finite resource there. Um, So, you know, we've grown the commons in some respects in the modern world with our technologies, but that tragedy of the commons is still there. So right now, if everybody in America just drove 100 miles less a week, right, Okay. If you have 100 million drivers, 100 miles less a week, imagine how much fuel would not get consumed. And the price of gas and diesel would have to fall because consumption would fall below production levels and it would start to build up. And storage is expensive and uh, the stuff dissipates over time. So we, we have those questions uh, perpetually swirling around us. Go, America. You like that? I gave the America a Cry and Josh came in. Um, what's William got to say? It's not about environment, it's about control. Well, yeah, that's uh, what. Uh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Michael Crichton, who passed away, who wrote a lot of good science fiction books. He wrote a book called State of Fear. And he says in, in that book, and if you haven't read that book, I strongly suggest you read it it's an anti-global warming book because he came to the conclusion that global warming really isn't an issue so much as it's a way to keep people in fear. That without a cold war and without a major, um, uh, you know, uh, a boogeyman to scare people with and to direct their energies, uh, we need a state of fear to be found. We need a state of fear created around this esoteric global warming problem that's too hard to grasp. But you just need to change a lot of stuff and then it will solve the problems. And he says he did a lot of research, and what he figured out is that there really isn't any evidence that man's changing the climate in a meaningful way. Uh, in fact, I'll use this as an opportunity, William, to say something that that, that I've wanted to say for a while. Um, and I've said it before, but but I don't know if I've talked about it on here, and I think I should probably do a whole show on this. When you get into the climate report from the UN, um they use a term, I think it's dominant cause or dominant, uh, I believe it's dominant cause. It's a legal term. It's used in the insurance industry mainly. And what it really talks about, it really means uh, is the primary cause amongst many. But the fruit roll-up example is my favorite. You ask a person, what's the first ingredient in a fruit roll-up? And and the, the right answer would be sugar. But if you look at the back of the box, the first primary ingredient in a fruit roll-up is actually fruit. Maybe not the fruit that it claims to be, because a lot of times it's apple or whatever, and then they add, you know, some cherry to the apple, give it the flavor. But that's the first ingredient. Then the next ingredient is sugar, then corn syrup, then high fructose corn syrup, and then uh, fractionalized sucrose or something, you know, like four or five different kinds of sugar. That allows them to sell them to a mother and say mama, you're giving your kid fruit. Look, fruit is the first ingredient in this thing, but fruit may only be 10% of the fruit roll-up as long as each other ingredient is less than the same amount, right? So let's just do the math on that. If a fruit roll-up is 20% fruit and then 19% uh, sucrose, right? And 18% high fructose corn syrup and 17%, you know, pretty soon you're at Almost 80% sugar, 20% fruit, but they're different kinds of sugar, so they don't count. So when the UN says, oh, man is the dominant cause or the, you know, the 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 dominant factor in this whole equation, that's interesting, right? Until you find out the climate's controlled by a hundred different factors. So man might only be three percent of the driver, and the other 97%, as long as none of those one factors are attributable to 3%. So that would mean that if man got completely un, uninvolved, 97% of what's happening would already be out there. Um, I think that's an important point to put in the back of your head. And the fact that they use that legal term in there tells me the answer, right? If they if they said man was the cause and fact of global warming, that would be one legal argument. But when they use weaselly insurance terms that allow for that fruit roll-up theory of fruit being the first ingredient, but it's really not a big ingredient in the in the item. It's not even a majority of the item. It's just the first ingredient. So, you know, the primary ingredient in a fruit roll-up is fruit. But is it really fruit? Is it even 50% fruit? Uh, it could be as low as 10% fruit if you have enough different kinds of sugars in it. And the fact that they use that same fruit roll-up uh, combination term to describe global warming, I kind of tells me the answer. Why would you use it unless you had to say that we're not sure how much effect man has, but we know it's not gigundous or else we would just count and say it. So when it comes to freedoms, yeah, I think that's a major issue. Uh, let's see. If CO2 is harmful, I suggest you stop breathing. Well, you know, the other interesting thing about CO2 is, and what we know is, remember, oxygen is measured in like a percentage of the atmosphere. CO2 is in parts per million. And the reason is because it's such a small amount of the atmosphere. But it turns out that the CO2 levels in the world have been much higher in the past than they are today. Um, and it appears that plants are actually optimized to live in a higher CO2 environment. There's nothing to suggest that a higher CO2 environment is detrimental to man in any way, shape, or form. Um, could it cause a little global warming and maybe open up some farmland in one spot and close off some farmland in another? Sure. Um, according to the estimates I've read, we could currently support 10 billion people with modern farming in the world. Uh, without really having a problem. Our biggest problem with food is not food itself. It's distribution and it's how it gets around. Again, a topic for another day. Um, but I want to leave you guys just with a with a thought here. If we're serious about our beliefs, if we think we know what we believe and we believe something, uh, we need to try to be consistent and study it. And I really do get Angry when people tell me, you know, there's a war on cigarettes and they're stealing our liberties. Okay, then why are you okay with the war on drugs? What's the difference? If you're a libertarian, be a libertarian. Okay, it's okay to have yield signs. You don't have to have stop signs. You can have traffic circles and yields and all kinds of things. Um, the world's complex, but but if you have a belief structure, be prepared to explain. Well, Carl, cocaine costs more lives than tobacco does, so that's why uh, cocaine should be illegal and tobacco isn't, because I'm drawing the line there. Now, that might not turn out to be rational, because as I've, as I've demonstrated earlier, they lose more economics, money, uh, direct and indirect to tobacco. It just doesn't happen as dramatic a fashion as a shooting in, 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 a, in a corner somewhere over a drug deal gone bad, right? Um, But even the people who get shot in drug dealers or drug deals are usually the drug dealers shooting each other over turf. Um, Maybe that ends if drugs aren't so lucrative and we're not fighting over turf anymore, we're just fighting over marketing like businesses do. Um, And I'm I'm not here to say legalize drugs, but what I'm here to say is, if you think that the war on drugs and locking up people with mandatory terms for selling cocaine is a good thing, then you should be all about locking up the guys who tobacco and alcohol or any other thing that has a detrimental effect on society. Uh, Interestingly, though, as a group, we often, you know, if I drink alcohol, then maybe that's the one thing we should allow. If I'm a 420 guy, you know, I like to puff on the little wacky weed. uh, Maybe that's the one thing that should be allowed. If I'm a tobacco guy, maybe that's the one thing that should be allowed. So when enough people want to speed, then everybody's going to speed because the police just can't stop it. So sometimes societies make choices and prioritize certain things because a majority of the members or a vocal minority of the members want to do it a certain way or want to have access to a certain thing or the politics, there's no benefit. So there's an argument that the carceral state, the uh, incarceration of individuals is its own money-making scheme and its own government self-propagating creature. And therefore, if we don't have these large drug mandatories, we won't have people to lock up. And so maybe drug regulation isn't about protecting people from drugs. It's argued about creating prisons. I don't 100% buy into that argument. But I do find it to be fascinating that Fox News, who would gladly bring on guests all day long to talk about crime. Evil's a crime. Joe Biden is allowing crime. And crime is rampant. And, and we need to do something about this and that is like oh yeah but tobacco that's a bridge too far how dare joe biden come after our menthol cigarettes how dare he take the nicotine he's not taking it by the way He's not making smoking illegal he's just saying if you want to smoke we'll take the nicotine out and if you still enjoy it smoke away but if it turns out that that little drug in there is what you're addicted to go find a tobacco flavored vape and get your drug in a safer alternative way um you know we have helmet laws for kids on bicycles. We have seatbelt laws for those of us who ride in cars. Maybe a law that regulates nicotine in tobacco is a violation of personal freedom, but it's one that has a net benefit to society with a minimal effect. Um, what's Don got to say here? Also, gang-related crime around black market alcohol also dropped off when prohibition was repealed. Absolutely, absolutely, um, prohibition was exactly what, I think it was Milton Friedman who wrote the letter to Bill Bennett back under Reagan when Reagan came out and Bill Bennett came out with the war on drugs. And he said, you guys have it wrong by making it illegal and putting a war on it. All you'll do is increase demand and price and reinforce the supply structure. And I think he's been proven right. In fact, we can prove that. Um, That happens all the time when things are banned and it increases their price. It becomes very difficult to control the supply because the risk benefit changes. Um, may maybe not the rational risk benefit, but the apparent risk benefit, uh, if you read Freakonomics, you'll learn that a lot of people who work in the drug in- the illegal drug industry would be better off working at McDonald's or the Home Depot, but it's the lure of the possibility of becoming the baller, uh, that draw them in. So there, there's a whole side besides the straight economics. Um, but anyhow, where I'm going with all this is all I want you to think about is if you think one thing should be regulated. Why are you thinking something else shouldn't be regulated? And why are you giving so much power to government? My favorite thing about my conservative friends is they all claim to love small government. They don't want a military policing the world, right? Uh, But for some reason, they want the local prosecutor and their local cops crawling up everybody's butt but theirs, of course. And nothing was funnier to me than when I was a lawyer, when people would come in be like, I can't believe the police arrested my kid. They don't understand, and all he was doing was setting off fireworks on the Fourth of July, and 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 I know it's illegal, but how dare they? And why? Um, but the same guy that would pick up the newspaper and read about somebody doing something and laugh and say, I hope they fry that guy. He's guilty. How do you know he's guilty? Well, I read an article in the newspaper. And I used to say to guys who were coming to the office, and they say, um, Well. You know, and I'm being unfairly accused, or my son's being unfairly accused. I'd be like, You used to read the newspaper? You ever read the newspaper and just look at the article and say, Oh man, that guy's guilty. I hope he fried. And they'd be like, Yeah. I'm like, look, well, somebody's doing that to you right now, and you're innocent. So next time when this is all over and you read the newspaper, remember this. Um, that's why really good prosecutors tend to drop cases if you push them to jury trial where they're going to be crappy for the government, because they don't want the 12 jurors to see the uh, BS that they hoist upon people sometimes. Uh, and, and what happens is 12 people leave the courtroom with an education now that maybe people accused of a crime really aren't guilty of anything. Um, you know, we should remember that. Donald Trump might be innocent. So <laughs> he might, you know, I, I mean, I can't, I know the hearings, by the way, by the way, people are saying, oh, there's no evidence. It's just all opinion. Evidence is testimony. If, if your mom says that that bad man over there attacked her in the alley, right? It's her word against that bad man, um, so evidence is just testimony. Okay, so when someone took and went in front of the January sixth committee recently and said Donald Trump told me, or I heard Rudy Giuliani say, that's what evidence is in court. Now, emails and video and things are are certainly powerful evidence. Um, and people used to tell me like, well, nobody should be allowed to be convicted without a video. And I'm like, well, you we have to remember our legal system was developed over the last thousand plus years. And there's only been video for about the last hundred of it and widespread use of video and availability of video for only like the last 20 or 30, right. And, and really granular cell phone and police video and things like that for the last 10, maybe 20 at the most. DNA really came into fame in the OJ trial, right? And that's all in our lifetimes. So our entire legal system is built on the idea that evidence is testimony and documents. Video and photographs are relatively new additions to the pile, uh, but they need not exist for people to be convicted, and jurors have convicted people wrongly for years. Um, let's see. Now trans athletes and how have their genitals physically examined prove they are the sex they say they are. Yet yeah, this is going to get really complicated because Hitler ran into this problem. He decided you know, they were going to try to figure out what the different races were and who was a member of what race it turns out to be completely impossible to classify people and uh i'm not gonna get graphic here but don there are people with physicalities um and diana says what about hearsay well hearsay is a out of state court statement offered for the truth of matter assertive but it's a repeated statement so if i go into court and i say that i saw rudy giuliani stuffing the ballot Uh, uh, the fake electors into somebody's hand, that's direct testimony of something I saw, so that's not hearsay. If I say that Rudy Giuliani told me that he knew the electors were fake um, on the fake electors ballot, that is a hearsay statement, but it falls under one of the exceptions because it would be a statement against interest, against penal interest, because it would tend to prove that he knew those were not real electors or false electors we would say that people don't lie in a way that puts themselves in jeopardy. So the statement is reliable. So the statement itself is reliable. Now, the only question is, is the person repeating it reliable? And the jury's told, assume that the statement itself is admissible, but do you believe the person who says they heard it? If you believe that they did in fact hear it, you may consider it. If you don't think they actually heard Rudy say that, you may not consider it. So any time you testify to what somebody said out of court, right? The police come in and testify to hearsay all the time. Carl came in and he confessed to stealing the money. He sat down with the detective. He told him what he did. So if I had taken a trial, the detective would have come in and he would have testified to what I told him. And that would have been enough evidence to convict me. Um, because it's hearsay from a defendant admitting to a crime, which clearly goes against your penal interest. So a confession is always admissible. Now we have other rules like the rest, rest day rule, uh, which, by the way, uh, we're doing this show on current legal topics, right? Uh, we're going to come back our current topics, I should say. We're going to come back and do a, a a a legal show at some point here. So I'm I'm kicking around the idea of reinvigorating weekend appointment where we can talk about people's uh, legal situations, not in the context of an attorney advising you, but in the context of just kicking around ideas. And so that, that may be in the works. If we do that, uh, that's gonna be done a little bit differently. Uh, and, and there may be some accoutrements coming with that. So I'm just gonna give you guys a little sneak peek on that. But anyhow, I don't wanna belabor everybody. I don't wanna, I don't wanna keep beating the dead horse here. But remember that freedom is not free, okay? Freedom is not free. Freedom is a series of choices. And there's a tension between a free society and totalitarian society, because you can't have no laws, right? We we've, we've kind of, a, and you can't have too many laws or there's no personal freedom. Um, where you draw that line, right? Um, if there's no power to tax, then the government can't build anything. So you can't have government. So I'll give you just a quick example. Schools, if, if, if a school were a business and it wasn't doing well, it would simply go bankrupt. And then at some point, a new business would move in to serve the market, right? But could you imagine that you had a seven-year-old son and you lived in rural Newville, Pennsylvania, and the, the big spring school district went bankrupt because it wasn't doing a good job and it wasn't collecting enough vouchers from people who wanted to support the school. So the school goes under. So now you have to bus your kid or drive your kid you know, to another town to go to school, but maybe there's no space in that school. So at some point, somebody's like, well, you know, you're just gonna have to figure it out. Well, we don't do it that way with schooling because it's a governmental function. It's assumed that it will be provided. Um, And that comes with its own set of problems. But schools can't go bankrupt and get renewed because we can't leave people without schooling, right? But if, if Netflix went bankrupt, a whole bunch of shows would be left on the shelf and somebody would have to buy them up and eventually someone would end up back on the air and some wouldn't. And the assets would be sold and repurposed. And some people would get what they wanted out of and some people wouldn't. Um, schooling is something that we don't leave to the markets exactly. Um, precisely because markets are imperfect and markets do leave people devoid of coverage. Okay, So all this argument that everything in government should be run like a business is an interesting argument. And it's 80% true. But there's a 20% chance that anything that's run like a business ends up hurting people. When it's a governmental service that needs to be in constant flow. Now There's there's ways of public-private partnerships and backups and things like that, but capacity and cost are always issues, okay? So anyhow, Sunday, uh, oh, why not have Rudy testify? Like, uh, uh, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is going to be indicted shortly, I assure you. I'm, I'm, in fact, my guess of who's going to be indicted shortly are Rudy and a couple of the other lawyers probably scott perry if i had to guess a couple other people i wouldn't be surprised if ron johnson hasn't gotten himself into some kind of trouble but he's a united states senator not merely a rep so who knows uh, what the politics of that are uh, indicting politicians is is all that it's not an absolute protection from indictment or conviction uh, but anyhow i i I'm, I'm, I'm not going to uh, uh, speculate whether Rudy should or shouldn't testify, but if I was still practicing law, I'd be happy to represent him and I'd tell him never to testify, right? Um, because he said too much as it is already. Uh, by the way, creating a fake government document, right, is a crime. So creating a slate of electors who aren't actually the electors, who are not adopted and set up by the people in charge, would be a falsified document, whether whether you think it's a great idea or not. Uh, so if you're watching the January 6th committee, as I am, there's a lot of direct evidence of wrongdoing and crimes that are being presented. And I've noticed a shift in the Trump voters uh, who seem to be moving from Trump did nothing wrong to, well, let's move on, let's get DeSantis, and let's just forget about Trump. He's not really the guy who thought he was. And, and just, you guys can tell me you agree or disagree with that subtle shift, but that's what I've seen. All right, well, I'm going on 45 minutes. And uh, we had a little problem there in the beginning with the sound. I'm not sure what the hell that was, but we'll figure it out. And uh, I will see you Sunday night uh, when I have to be a little more coherent.